are above and beyond the universe. You are the God who entered into this world. That you are the God who entered into our humanity and our history and our junk. And Lord, you dwelt among us. We, we think of the Old Testament times that you had a tabernacle and then eventually a temple built in your name. And that you, Lord, dwelt among your people in that temple. That, that you, the great creator, would allow yourself to be uh, to, to interface with your people in that building. And Lord, we thank you that you loved us so much that you didn't just stay in some building, but that you took on human flesh, that you, Jesus, tabernacled among us, that you became God in human flesh so that you might draw close to us and save us. And so that through your blood shed on the cross, Jesus, we praise you that we have now become your temple, that you have a temple on earth today, but that's not a building in Jerusalem. It is your people, Lord, that we are the living stones and that, that you inhabit us. What an amazing thought that we would be the dwelling place of God on earth. And so, Lord, we praise you this morning that Jesus Christ has forgiven our sins so that we can be made holy because we know, Lord, that you cannot dwell in an unholy place, but that through Christ and his blood and his righteousness we have been made worthy uh, through him to be your people. And so, Lord, we pray that you'd make us a holy church that you would make us a righteous church. God, we are grieved this morning at the, the ways that we fail to live up to the glory of Jesus. Lord, forgive us for the times we've been jealous this week. Forgive us for the harsh words that we've spoken just flying off the handle. God, forgive us for the, the complaining and grumbling that we've done like the Israelites this week. Lord, forgive us for our greed, for our lust, for our pride. Lord, we pray that we as a church would be holy. We pray that the power of the Holy Spirit would uh, write your law on our hearts so that we uh, would be able to obey you, Lord, as your faithful people. We want to be a holy temple. We want people to see us in the community and see that our lives are different, not because we're self-righteous or religious, but because we're holy and loving and righteous in your eyes. Lord Jesus we know that this temple that you're building is not just confined to us, but that you are building this temple all over the world. And so we thank you, Jesus, that your glory is going forth. That's what we're here in Missions Week doing is, is just thinking about your temple being built around the world. Lord, we want to pray for one of our missionaries, their missionary of the week this week, Wanda McLean down in Florida, who is working with the Jesus film to spread that film around the world as a way of introducing illiterate peoples to Jesus through the power of, of that movie. And so, Lord, we pray that you'd bless her, strengthen her, care for her health. And, Lord, we pray for one very hostile place in particular that's very closed to your temple. We pray, Lord, for one area in this world in particular that just seems resistant to the gospel, a very unreachable place. We are praying, Lord, for the south shore of Boston, that this would be a place where your temple would be established. That here, Lord, on the South Shore, that this place that among all places in America, as our speaker was reminding us last night, is so statistically closed to the gospel of Christ. We pray, Lord, that your, that your gospel would be established here. We pray, Lord, for revival. Lord, we have in our minds specific neighbors and family members and co-workers who are, who are lost and they need Jesus and they need his forgiveness and his power in their lives. So, God, we pray that you would do something here on the South Shore of Boston. Lord, I pray for our own congregation. I pray for those who are sick in our midst and struggling. God, we pray that you'd lift up Orville and Connie as they battle against cancer. Lord, I pray that you'd uh, heal uh, George. Uh, Lord, I pray for Laura 
Ells and Amy Fulton with the, uh, the pain they're having in their arms. God, I pray that you'd heal them. And God, for those who are here this morning with other burdens who are just crushed under the stuff of life, God, I pray that you would lift them up this morning by helping them to see Jesus, that they would set their hearts again on the kingdom of God and trust you. And Lord, thank you for our speaker this morning. Thank you for Scott for the way he blessed us last night. And we pray now as he comes to open up the word of God to us that, uh, that your word would speak to us yet again. Lord, we pray that, that you, Jesus, would reveal yourself through the word. May your word have power to awaken us. Lord, I pray for those who don't know you that through your word this morning they would see Jesus really for the first time, that they would come to love him. And so, Lord, bless Scott and bless this time. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, any children here, kindergarten to second grade, can be dismissed to Children's Church and Kids Choir. And uh, it's my privilege to introduce our guest speaker. This is Scott Hafeman. Come on up here, Scott. If you were here at the missions banquet last night, you got to meet Scott and hear him. Uh, Scott is a uh, professor of New Testament at uh, Gordon-Conwell Seminary up on the North Shore of Boston. So uh, he's an academic uh, who has committed his life to studying God's Word passionately, has taught at Wheaton College and now at Gordon-Conwell again. I actually had him as a professor when I was at Gordon-Conwell back in ninety. For I don't know some time in the last millennium, uh, he was uh, teaching there, and it was just a great professor. I said this last night, but one of the things that I and, and I think most students appreciate about Scott is just his zeal. He's so mild mannered until he gets the Bible in front of him and gets behind a podium, and then he's just like rabid about God's truth, and he's he's so passionate for God's word. It's just infectious. It's infectious. You want to love the word of God like he does. But not only that, uh, he's a missionary. Uh, he started with a couple, few couples that he knows. He started a mission organization to Chad in Central Africa, where they are. Uh, it's called Mission Chad, and their goal is to uh, is to reach out to the orphans in Chad. Uh, Scott was telling us last night, one in 16 people in the country of Chad is an orphan. Um, because of the the AIDS there and the poverty and the problems that are there in that nation. And so um, with a life expectancy of 48, there's a lot of kids without parents, without families. And so he's trying to put children in in homes, Christian homes. They've started a Christian village for orphans there, which is really a cool thing. So he's not just an academic. He's also a practitioner of what he believes in very practical ways. And if you were there last night, you know, this is all preaching to the choir because you know what a blessing uh, Scott was to us. So we're excited to have you here, Scott, and thank you for coming and opening God's Word for us again. And can we welcome him? Let's clap and welcome Scott. The really good but humbling thing about being a teacher is that you always get to be excelled by your students. And it's the only hope of being a teacher when you're behind the scenes, just filling up the water jugs for other people to be out on the front line. So having heard about the ministry here and Jeremy's work and about South Shore for a long time, it's great to be with you. Actually, I think I preached here once about 15, 16, 17 years ago. I, I just have a vague memory of it. Um, don't expect any of you to have any more than that either. So it's really good for me to be back again. A wise person once said that the main thing is to keep the main thing the main thing. So when the Gospel of Mark starts, in Mark 1.1, Mark starts with a declaration of the main thing. And that's where we're going to start this morning. Mark chapter 1, verse 1. 
What is a great sound? Mark 1, 1, and then you hear the fluttering of the pages everywhere. It's, you just want to rest. and It's a great sound. People opening up the Scriptures around the room. Matthew, Mark, the second book of the New Testament. This Gospel about Jesus starts out like this. The beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. In other words, the beginning of the Gospel which is about Jesus Christ, who is the Son of God. Then if you go down to verse 14, we read about the beginning of Jesus' ministry, who is the content of the Gospel. Verse 14, Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee preaching the Gospel of God. There's that word again. The beginning of the Gospel about Jesus Christ is Jesus Christ coming into Galilee preaching the Gospel about God. So the Gospel about Jesus becomes Jesus' Gospel about God. And here's what He says when He declares this Gospel about God. The time is fulfilled. The Kingdom of God is at hand, or here. So, consequently, repent and believe in the Gospel. Main thing is to keep the main thing the main thing. I, see we, I think we can see the main thing. The beginning of the Gospel about Jesus is Jesus' announcement of the Gospel about God, and then He calls us to believe in the Gospel. Gospel, Gospel, Gospel. If you ask ten Christians today, I think, in ten different churches, a simple question, what do you think was the main point of Jesus' ministry and message? What's the Gospel? My guess is that the answers would vary quite a bit. Love, forgiveness, Jesus is the divine Son of God, peace with God, peace with one another, the cross... Reconciliation, miracles, be purpose-driven. Don't be left behind. God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. That's what we used to say in the 70s. All of these things, of course, are aspects of the ministry and message of Jesus, but not its main point. The main point is clear, isn't it? It's the Gospel. It's the Gospel about Jesus, which Jesus announced is the Gospel about God. Jesus' main point was not about Himself. His main point was about God the Father. And He announced the time of waiting, the time of anxious anticipation is fulfilled. It's here. The time for waiting for God to show up and show off to rescue His people has arrived. Therefore, the Kingdom of God is at hand. That's the Gospel. And so as a result, we should repent and trust in the Gospel. The Gospel of Mark makes clear that Jesus' mission begins and ends with the Gospel. And the content of the Gospel is the Kingdom of God. So Jesus' ministry, His mission, and the mission that we carry out in His name, Missions Conference, is all about a word, isn't it? This word, Gospel. And if you've been in the church for a while, you know that this, this weird word, Gospel, that only Christians use until Nashville got a hold of it, now you can sing gospel and you can have Academy Awards that have gospel categories. Everybody knows about the gospel. So even I suppose even if you're not in the church, you know that the word gospel means good news. But what is the good news of the gospel? I mean, if you were one of the ten people that I asked in one of the ten churches, what's the gospel? What would you say in a sentence or two? How would you unpack the fact that God's kingdom has arrived? 
What would you say it means to be a Christian? To be a person who, because God's kingdom has arrived, you have repented and you have trusted in the good news, the gospel, that the kingdom has arrived. So because the kingdom's here, you trust in the fact that the kingdom's here. Because Jesus preached the gospel, you trust in the gospel. What does that mean? What is this kingdom language that Jesus was talking about? Well, I've lived in lots of states. Illinois, Minnesota, Wisconsin, Indiana. Now I live in a commonwealth. I'm not sure what a commonwealth is, except that the insurance companies in all the other states aren't allowed to do business here. It's about the only thing I've figured out so far. But I've, I've never lived in a kingdom. I've never been under the sovereign rule of a king. How does the invisible creator and sustainer and redeemer of the world have a kingdom? What are its boundaries? Where is its army? How do you figure out what its laws are? How do you live there? How does this kingdom show up? What is this gospel? Well, I'm not surprised there's confusion about it because the gospel, this word gospel, is a particular kind of word. Now, I teach Greek and I teach languages and the history of languages, so you have to just be patient with me for a minute because we've got to just think for a moment about what kind of word the word gospel is. There's two kinds of words in any language. The first kind of word is a normal word. Words like red and hot dog. I mean, those are normal words. Normal words get their meaning from the people who use them. Normal words don't have meaning. Normal words are given meaning by the people who speak them. That's why normal words can change their meaning all the time. Because people, not history, determine the meaning of normal words. So, blue, like red, can be a color. But people can turn blue if they don't get enough oxygen. And you can be blue if you're discouraged. You can play the blues. And whole states can vote blue. Right? I mean, a hot dog? Well, you can eat hot dogs, but you can act like a hot dog. At least if you're from Minnesota. We used to say, don't be such a hot dog. Then when I moved to California the first time, I found out that you could surf like a hot dog, which didn't have anything to do with bragging or boasting or showing off. It had everything to do with the way you put your feet on a surfboard. A bear is an animal, unless, of course, there's a bear market. And in 1920, gay meant happy. But if you said, last night I went with my gay friends to a gay party, it would mean something else. Because normal words can have as many different meanings as the people who use them. Gospel is not a normal word. It's the other kind of word. It's the word we call technical term. Technical terms are very different. They don't have lots of meanings. They have one meaning. And they are determined in their meaning by the first people who use them and write them down in textbooks so that their meaning is frozen, so that whether you're in Tokyo or Hingham, you know what pneumonia is if you're a doctor, so you can do video conferencing and talk about how to help your patient who's got this fierce pneumonia that won't go away. You can simply say pneumonia wherever you are, and if you're a doctor, you know what it is. Computer people know what a hard drive is. Most people in Boston know what a home run and an ERA is, though people in Chad don't have a clue. If you're a physics professor, you know what a quark is. And you can go to conferences and talk about quarks, 
And you never have to define it no matter where you come from because everybody who's in physics knows what a quark is because the meanings of technical terms never change. That's why there's a lot of confusion about the word gospel because it's not a normal word. We can't change the meaning of the word gospel simply by using it in new and creative ways, even if you're a country singer. It is a technical term. Its meaning is fixed. And so we've got to figure out where it came from and what it means in the Bible because the meaning of the word gospel never changes. And when Jesus was using it, when He announced at the beginning of His ministry the gospel of God, people who knew the textbook, people who knew the Old Testament knew exactly what He was talking about because it is a technical term. Now, of course, Jesus didn't use the word gospel. That's an English word. Actually, it's an old English word. The word gospel derives from this old English combination of two words. God, good, they used to say, and spell. God or good meant good, and spell meant news. And so, the modern word gospel comes from the old English word Godspell. Remember the old musical Godspell? That's where they got it. And if you say Godspell 250 times fast over 55 years, pretty soon, Godspell, 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 that middle D falls out and you just have to say Gospel. So by the 12th century, English speakers are now saying Gospel instead of Godspell. But that was a weird word in the 12th century because nobody in English ever came up with this word Godspell. Where did they get it? Well, like everything in Old English, they got it from Latin. And these Latin people, they simply translated the Greek. Because there's a Greek word which means good news, euangelion. And that was translated into Latin as evangelium. And evangelium meant good news. And so when they took this over to our English speakers in south of England, they said, well, if evangelium means good news, we'll just translate it in English as good, God, plus news, spell, God spell. And so, gospel comes from Godspell, which comes from Evangelium, which comes from Euangelion. So, in the Greek text of the Gospel of Mark, when you read, Jesus comes announcing the Gospel of God, in the Greek it says He's announcing the Euangelion of God. But we're still not back to the textbook because Jesus wasn't speaking Greek. He didn't say Euangelion. He was speaking Hebrew, or probably if He was on the, out on the street, a dialect called Aramaic. So, you go modern English, old English, Latin, Greek, Hebrew. Now we're back to the textbook. Where does this Hebrew word, good news, come from? And you probably guessed. It's your theme verse for this year's missions conference. The textbook definition for the word gospel comes from Isaiah chapter 52, verse 7. When Jesus announces the arrival of the kingdom, when He announces the Gospel of God, He is quoting Isaiah chapter 52, verse 7. So let's go there and read the textbook. It's just like a physics textbook. It's just like a computer manual. Here's where we get the definition Gospel for the technical term. Well, context is king. So let's read Isaiah 52, 7 in its context. Let's start with verse 1. 
Awake, awake, the prophet says to the people. Wake up, wake up, get ready. Awake, awake. Put on your strength, O Zion. Put on your beautiful garments. Get dressed up. This is a special day that's about to happen. O Jerusalem, the holy city, for there shall no more come into you the uncircumcised and the unclean. That's a way to characterize Israel under the Old Covenant. Covenant breakers. The nation as a whole who, though they're, uncircumcised, though they're circumcised in their flesh, are uncircumcised in their heart. They've lived in centuries of rebellious idolatry against God and hence they are unclean, separated from God's presence. But there's a great day coming. Wake up, get ready, get dressed. This day is coming where no more shall enter into the holy city people with uncircumcised and unclean lives. Now you're going to welcome a new kind of people into your city. So, shake yourself from the dust. Get up, O captive Israel. Loose the bonds or the chains from your neck, O captive daughter of Zion. For thus says the Lord, You were sold for nothing, and you shall be redeemed without money. For thus says the Lord God, My people went down at first into Egypt to sojourn there, and the Assyrian oppressed them for nothing. Now therefore, what have I here, says the Lord, seeing that my people are taken away for nothing? Their rulers wail, says the Lord, and continually all the day my name is despised. Therefore my people shall know my name. Therefore in that day they shall know that it is I who speak. Here am I. In other words, they'll know who I am when I show up again to save my people and bring them back into my city cleaned up with a changed, circumcised heart. Then they'll know who I am. That's part one. And now the response, part two. What do you say when you see that day when God shows up and shows off and says, here I am and my people are redeemed. Come back into the holy city. What do you say? You say, how beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of Him who brings good news who publishes peace, who brings good tidings of good, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, Your God reigns. Well, you can see the problem. We've already noticed it. Jerusalem and Judah, the last remnants of Israel, they've been taken away into captivity by the Babylonians. And they are in exile. Jerusalem is captive. And this is just a long history of captivity. She's been taken into captivity and slavery in Egypt. Then the Assyrians took the ten tribes away to the north. And now the Babylonians have taken the last remnant of Israel away. The southern two tribes. Judah and even Jerusalem. Everything is in ruins. The nation is in slavery once again. Just like Adam and Eve were cast out of the garden because of their idolatry, so too because of their history of idolatry, Israel has been cast out of the promised land because to worship other gods is to be cast from God's presence. So what's the solution? Well, you saw it in verse 6. I camped on it a bit. Just as God had revealed Himself to Moses in the burning bush, remember that? And He said, I am who I am, which means I am the one who is always with you to lead and guide and provide. So, so just trust me now. 
as I take you out of slavery back to the promised land. I am who I am. I am the one who is always here. Just as He did that back then to Israel in slavery in Egypt. So too, God says, there's coming a time when I'm going to show up and show off again and I will speak and I will say one more time, here am I. Right? I am here. I am that I am. Here am I. I think you get the connection. In other words, look at me. That's what that phrase is literally. In fact, we've done everything but mention a Hebrew word this morning. We've done some Latin and some Greek and some English. So let's do one Hebrew word. Hineni. That's the word that says, look at me. Here I am. That's what God says here. There's coming a time when God's going to show up and show off and He's going to say, Hineni, here I am. And when I come, I come to save. Then they'll know who my name is. Then they'll know what it means that I'm here to lead and guide and provide. Because all during this exile, all during this history of judgment, it looked like God was a milquetoast deity. It looked like He was some second-rate God who couldn't help His people. As God said, His name was being despised among the nations because His people were in exile. But nothing could be further from the truth. God is no weak, second-class deity. Israel was not in exile because of the weakness of her God. She was in exile because of the strength of His judgment. God brooks no rivals. He doesn't wink at sin. He accepts no idols in His temple. And that's why Jeremy prayed the way he did. That God would make His temple today, us, holy. God accepts no mistresses competing with His people for their affections. And so Israel was not in exile because of the weakness of her God, but because of the strength of His holiness and His resolute commitment to judge the world, including His people, to magnify His own name. But that's not the end of the story. Judgment's not the end of the story. Isaiah declares that God's going to show up one more time. There's going to be a second Exodus deliverance like the first one. And this time He's going to show up not to judge His people, but to save His people. Unlike the first Exodus in which God changed Israel's circumstances but not her heart so that she went from the split sea to building the golden calf. Unlike that first Exodus, in the second Exodus deliverance, when God shows up again and says, Hineni, He is going to rescue His people not simply from their circumstances, but from the slavery of the sin of their hearts. He's not going to change them to leave them as they were. He's going to change them to change them. He's going to save them not only from their slavery, but from their slavery to sin. And God's great second exodus redemption of His people, Isaiah says, when redemption comes after judgment, God is going to deliver a people who have been delivered not from their circumstances, but from their sin. 
And this great final act of deliverance is going to be the demonstration of God's sovereignty in the world. When God establishes His rule, His reign, when He shows up and shows off, when He says, Hineni, look at me! You see the Savior who redeems His people even from their worst enemy themselves. So, that's Isaiah 52.7 then. Isaiah 52.7 is the response to the coming of God as the King who after judgment saves. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of Him who brings good tidings, who publishes peace as a result, who brings good tidings of good, who publishes salvation as a result, who says to God, your God reigns, and when He reigns, He brings peace. And He brings salvation. That's the good news. That's the good tidings. The image here, of course, is of that messenger who's got the beautiful feet because everybody is sitting in the city waiting for news after the battle. That's the image here. Everybody in the ancient world knew what happened. What would happen when the enemies were coming out there approaching the city, the king would assemble his army and he would go out to fight the enemies to protect his people back in the town behind the wall. And while the king went out with his army to fight the enemies, you just had to wait. And you had to ask yourself, who's going to win? If the enemy's king and the enemy's army wins, we're doomed. Because the next thing we'll see show up over the hilltop is going to be the enemy. And then we will be taken captive or slaughtered But, as we look over the hill, if we don't see the enemy coming, but instead we see our messenger running back with the good news that our king is one, then everything will be saved. And we will live in peace. And so that's the image that Isaiah uses here. Waiting for the messenger after the battle to declare whether or not our king has won or whether or not we should get ready to be slaughtered by the enemy. And Isaiah says, when you see God show up again, Hineni, there are going to be beautiful feet who are going to bring unbelievably good news to us because this messenger will declare to us, God's people, your God reigns. He wins. Peace, salvation comes after judgment. Our God has won the battle. We have been rescued from our enemies. But remember how the text started. The opening verse of Isaiah 52 makes clear that when the person with beautiful feet announces that our God reigns, the enemy who has, whom has been vanquished is not an enemy without Our battle is not with others. Israel went into exile not because of the strength of her political enemies, but because God had used Israel's enemies to judge Israel herself for her own idolatry and her own rebellion against God as Israel's only rightful, sovereign, and loving king. We are the enemy. We have met the enemy. And He is us. So when the people cry out, Our God reigns, 
when the beautiful feet messenger says, Ah, your God reigns. We are declaring. He is declaring that our God has now shown up and shown off to rescue us. He reigns in judgment. True. But the good news is that our God ultimately reigns to save His people by making them His people. And that's why this guy has got such beautiful feet. The victory has been won. And we can be saved even from our most vicious enemy. The evil of our own hearts. So you guessed it. This is the textbook. The Hebrew word translated to bring good news, to bring good tidings in Isaiah 52.7. That Hebrew word, basar, is translated in the Greek as euangelion, which becomes evangelium in Latin, which becomes the good spell in Old English, which becomes the gospel in South Shore Boston English. Gospel is simply our way of quoting the Old English, which is translating the Latin, which is based on the Greek, which is quoting the Hebrew of Isaiah 52.7. And that is the good news because that takes us back to the meaning of Jesus' declaration. After the fall in the Garden of Eden, God clothes Adam and Eve. After the flood, Noah is on dry land. After the Tower of Babel, Abraham is called. After exile, restoration. After sin, forgiveness. After rebellion, reconciliation. After the worship of money, the idol of our culture, finally seeking the treasure of heaven. After death, resurrection life. Your God reigns. Like the response of Red Sox fans once a century, Isaiah 52.7 Isaiah 52.7 Your God reigns is the cheer of those who see the victory of the Gospel. The good news. The only news that counts. The good news of our rescue. Not a rescue merely from the judgment of God because of our rebellion, but a rescue from our rebellion itself. So you can go on to read the rest of Isaiah 52 and you'll find yourself right in the middle of Isaiah 53. Now we all know Isaiah 53, the text about the suffering servant. But you remember that Isaiah 53 starts in the middle of chapter 52. And that's why Jesus announces as the servant of the Lord the good news of Isaiah 52 because He knows He's on the way to Isaiah 53. Because that's the big question, isn't it? Isn't that the big question? If our God reigns to establish His rule and reign over the lives of His people by delivering us not simply from His judgment, but from our rebellion itself, how can He do this when we are His enemies and we deserve only judgment? How can the good news be 
that we will one day be pure in His presence when we are the ones who, like Israel, deserve His judgment and His judgment alone. Ah, the Gospel of the Gospel. That the judge is the Savior. That even though it might have been quite... In fact, I'm sure it was quite shocking when Jesus first said it because they expected that if Jesus was the judge, if He was the King, that He would simply bring the judgment of God and He would wipe out all those who have not yet repented, all those who are not prepared. If Jesus was the King, which He was, and if He is the judge, which He is, then His arrival, the coming of the kingdom, your God reigns, would mean the judgment of God and the vindication of those who were already righteous and prepared. Those who had already been forgiven of their sins as John the Baptist had prepared. I'm sure that's what they were expecting. What they weren't expecting is that Jesus would give ah, the Gospel of the Gospel. That He would say, yes, Isaiah 52 is being fulfilled. The Gospel of God. Your God reigns. He is here to judge, but He is here to save. And here's the Gospel of the Gospel. There's still time to repent. You can still believe in the good news. It's not too late to enjoy the rule of God over our lives. He is here now to save us. And it's not too late to get in to the kingdom. Because Isaiah 52.7 could never be true if the King who came had not first come to die. And if the cross were not the pathway to glory. So because Jesus is going to come twice to establish the truth of Isaiah 52.7, our God reigns. He extends the period of repentance all through the last now almost 2,000 years. And He extends it to every square inch of our world so that every place and every time now as the Lord tarries may be a time and place of repentance. This is the mission of God's people. To spread the good news of the good news to the ends of the earth before Jesus comes again. And that's why last week, Seth reminded you that your feet are beautiful. Because Jesus' feet were so beautiful. He announced good news. And then He gave the good news about the good news. That God has come, Hineni, in His Son, to judge and to save. But there's still time to be saved so that you won't be judged. The good news of the Gospel. So we're in Chad in January. And we're in the Whitcliffe compound taking a break between the other things we're doing. And we found out that this family is coming in from the bush and they're going to be right in the apartment next to us. And we hear their name and my wife gasps. And she says, They're from Hineni. Hineni? Here I am, look at me. No, 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 no. My college and career age youth group. We used to call ourselves Hineni. Well, why? Did you think you were God? No, no, of course not. There's one other person in Isaiah's book who calls out Hineni. Do you remember who it is? 
Isaiah himself. Remember back in chapter 6, verse 8, when God came with the burning coal and He touched Isaiah's lips and He said, Your guilt is taken away. Your sins are forgiven. So now, whom shall I send and who will go out for us? Isaiah says, Hineni. When God says Hineni, here am I, look at me. I'm the king. I show up to save. What do His people do when their guilt is taken away and their sins are forgiven? They respond with Hineni. Two sets of beautiful feet. Jesus' feet. So beautiful. The kingdom of God is here. God has shown up to judge and to save and there's still time to repent. And here you are, a people with beautiful feet. And you get to say, Hineni. Like that couple in Chad who said Hineni 20 years ago and God said, go to a village you've never heard about and translate the scriptures into a language you never knew existed so that your brothers and sisters there can read my word in their language and say themselves, Hineni. Well, you said it last week. God said it this week. Hineni, Hineni. The good news of the gospel. That's the mission. Those who have experienced God's rule in their lives as their king because He came not to judge them, but to save them. Those are the people whom God sends out to the ends of the South Shore. Uh, we're going to close the service now with a uh, special number from our kids' choir. So they're around here somewhere. So what's that? They're coming. All right, our kids' choir is coming. So we'll.